Friends, our scripture lesson this morning comes from a prophet uh, who is remarkable for his forthrightness. All prophets are, to be sure. But Amos, in particular, this passage in Amos, uh, has a word for his day that is so relevant for us this day, in this time, and in this moment. Hear these words from the prophet Amos, chapter 5, and I will be reading from verse 18 through 24. Alas, for you, you who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. It is as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand upon the wall and was bitten by a snake. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But... Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A long time ago, when I was in seminary, um, it was in the 1970s, we took great glee in finding a passage of scripture from the Psalms, in particular um, Psalm 50 verse 9. In the old Revised Standard Version, circa 1952, which went like this, I will accept no bull from your house. Now, to be sure, the um, 1952 translators could not have understood that the, that word bull had become, by that time in 1970, as it is today, a common idiom, a vulgar one at that. Um, so that, that verse for us became uh, uh, grist for the mill for many an edgy sermon like this one. It's not the first time I preached on that. Um, it became the grist for the, for the mill of many a newsletter. But you know, it's amazing, that verse. I will accept no bull from your house. The word bull there, actually, vulgar though it may be, gets right to the heart of what the psalmist wanted to say and gets right to the heart of what Amos has to say to us about what we do in worship, about our lives. God will accept no bull. Amos puts it this way. I hate, I despise, I take no delight, which in the Hebrew means I, I hate the smell of it, of your solemn assemblies, of your worship. I can't stand to look at it. 
to listen to it. It's all noise to me. What, what, a, what a strident critique of Israelite worship. I can't imagine a stronger critique. And, and the, word, the word bull is appropriate because it has to do with a lie, an outrageous lie at that. Now, you might ask the question, it's a fair enough question, how can worship be a lie? How can worship be bull? Well, let me try to get at that, if, I, if, if you don't mind, and that's probably, and, 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 it, and it really occupies me because I, it, it seems to be so appropriate for this time and place that we're in right now. I've been reading a, a book by um, Eddie Gloud, the uh, university professor of African-American studies at Princeton. And the book is on uh, James Baldwin, his life and legacy, and what we can learn from his, his life for our time and place. Eddie Gloud points out that, um, that James Baldwin talked about the lie a lot. The lie, you see, was the architecture, the core of American life, based on a hierarchy of value, racism, classism. Um, the lie was so ingrained in us for Baldwin that all of us are deformed and defaced by it. That's the lie. The lie is that which is camouflaged in, in common life. It's covered up, it's gerrymandered, it's tailored to the point that it's acceptable, and it's blessed in varieties of kinds of ways. And for Baldwin, it's a dangerous thing to confront the lie. But the lie has to be confronted. We have to look at it, look deep into the divisions of our, of our world and call them for what they are. It's a lie, expose it, open it up to what possible truth might, might, might be seen after we expose it. That's what Baldwin was trying to do, and that's what Eddie Cloud uh, says is a legacy of Baldwin for our time and place. And, and at one point in the book, um, Eddie Cloud has a, has, a, has, a, um, has a really haunting pondering of the life and legacy of James Baldwin, and, and, and this is what he says. Ours is a cold civil war. There are some who want to retain and go back to that which never made any sense to me, says Cloud. And then there are some who want to begin again and make America new all over again. But in this fight, in these divisions, um, the ghosts seem tired and worn. But these ghosts of this cold civil war, they have us by the throat. I can't help but believe that Eddie Cloud is, is, is right about that. The ghost, tired and worn, have us by the throat. Isn't it true? We have been living through this, this pulverizing election, a pandemic that will just not let go that is exposing the fissures of American life, 
Hard to get at it. But if, but if, but if James Baldwin would have it, we, we must confront it, dangerous though it might be. You know, some of you may remember uh, back in October of, of 2017, the 500th year of the uh, Protestant Reformation, when uh, Martin Luther supposedly uh, nailed the uh, 95 theses on the Wittenberg uh, church door. But you know, for me, uh, the more significant moment uh, came in April, just five months later of 2018. It was the 500th year of the uh, Heidelberg Disputations. Not as well known as the 95 Theses, not as well known as that great moment of um, Protestant Reformation, the beginning of it. In the Heidelberg Disputation is where, is where Martin Luther defined his, what he called the theology of the cross as opposed to what he called the theology of glory. Now the theology of the glory and the theologians of glory were the theologians that were working in the church of his day, he said. And the theologians of glory call evil good and good evil. Now I think the gist of that is this, that they bless whatever is as deformed as it may be, as distorted and unjust as it may be. And then he went on to say that the theology of the cross doesn't do that. The theology of the cross, Martin Luther said, calls a thing what it is. In other words, it exposes the lie and it confronts it dangerous though it might be. I'm reminded here about the life, legacy, and theology of uh, Johann Baptist Metz, one of the uh, great German theologians of the uh, 20th century. Some of us have been reading about us, uh, uh, Metz in a book group here at Second Presbyterian Church. He has a remarkable story. Uh, when he was 16 years old at the tail end of World War II uh, in Germany, with the Allies advancing on Germany. He was forced into the German army, he and, a, and about 100 other uh, mid-teen youth. And they were forced to the front lines. Uh, one day, he was asked to take a message to the battalion, and he did so. And upon his return, he found all of his 100 comrades, youth, teenagers, dead. They had been overrun by an allied tank squadron. It was a devastating moment. He talks about it as the silent cry. He said that his youthful childhood memories were shattered at that moment. He was taken prisoner of war, spent time here in Maryland, I mean, excuse me, in Virginia and in Maryland uh, in a prisoner of war camp after World War II. And upon his return to Germany, he had to come to terms with what he had seen that day, but also he had to come to terms with the Holocaust he did so by uh, pondering the witness of uh, liberation theologians of Central America and the base communities there. 
And what came out of that was remarkable. In his book, A Passion for God, he talks about a dangerous Christ. Not dangerous because Christ is violent, but dangerous because Christ breaks through our amnesia, breaks it open so that we can see the world and its brokenness for what it is and call it for what it is. He said that those who preach about resurrection and yet don't hear the cries of the crucified in our midst are not preaching the gospel. He said that easy Christianity that blesses, that simply blesses what is, are not hearing the gospel. He called for us to follow a dangerous Christ, a Christ that uh, confronts the lie, a Christ that uh, is not afraid to call things for what it is. It seems to me that we're at that moment. A cold civil war, as Eddie Glad mentioned it, where, where the ghost of the past have us by the throat. It seems to me it's time to call it what it is. Expose the lie, and, and so that we might see the powerful love of God that wants to embrace not only, uh, not only friend, but even enemy. So that we can see fully who God is in the face of the other. And we can be about healing the wounds of this country and the divisions. Now, you know, I, I, I wouldn't blame any one of you after everything that we've been through to say, you know, I, I'm just tired. I'm just weary of it all. And I, want to, I want to tell the whole world to just go jump. I wouldn't blame you if that's the way you're feeling right now because, you know, I'm feeling that too. I'm tired of looking at the news. I'm tired of my gut-wrenching over, over every counted vote. I'm, I'm tired of the pandemic. I'm tired of the, hearing about the fissures that it has exposed in our world. But you know, I'll bet uh, Martin Luther King got tired and weary. In fact, he said he did. Harriet Tubman surely got weary. James Baldwin got very weary. But you know, they couldn't afford to give in to it. And I don't think we can either. I don't think we can either because, you know, God's justice is going to come rolling down and righteousness like a mighty flowing stream. It's going to happen with us or without us. Martin Luther King uh, preached those words so often. And he believed them even though he was weary and tired himself. But it is a, this is a moment in American history. This is a moment in, in our church life, our church lives together. When we cannot afford to hear those words ever, ever again in our souls, in our lives to realize that there is a justice that God is about. King spoke about it. 
The arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He got that from the prophet Amos. So how can our worship be authentic? Well, I think it is here at Second Presbyterian Church. It is authentic as, as it is an expression of our lives that are becoming just, that are just, that are expressions of God's righteousness and love for the world. That's when worship is authentic. That's when worship is powerful. I'll never forget my first church in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. There was a, a woman in that church that refused to partake of communion. It was really striking. Um, she would come to church on a Sunday, and if she forgot that we were going to serve communion that Sunday, you would see her walk to the back of the church. She saw the communion table set, and she'd turn around and walk out. The amazing thing was this woman was, was, was a tremendous woman of integrity. But when, when I asked her about why she didn't partake of communion, she, she would say, I, I, I don't partake of it because I don't feel worthy. And I thought, well, Mary, you have more integrity than, than most people that I know. But, but, you know, we don't partake of communion because we're worthy. We partake of communion because the grace of God is, is here, grace of God that is given to us. It's a forgiveness that, in fact, enables us to be worthy. But Mary um, never bought what I was um, saying to her, never bought what I, what, what I suggested about um, about communion. She never bought it because I don't, I don't, I, th I, th I think she probably believed maybe, maybe that um, as a church we weren't living up fully to the creed that we preached. Now maybe that was a judgmental thing, maybe it wasn't. Mary could be hard on the church. She was hard on me once. I'll never forget this happened some 32 years ago. I, I was preaching a sermon on the Beatitudes, and, and she came up to me afterwards and said, Roger, that was a very middle-class sermon. <laughs> I wish she had just said to me, Roger, that sermon was terrible. No, she said to me, Roger, that was a very middle-class sermon. Ah! It was like a stab in the heart. Because you see, I knew enough about Martin Luther then to, to realize that what she was telling me was it was, a, it was an expression of the theology of glory, not a theology of the cross. The theology of the cross calls a thing what it is. Now we do partake of communion. Because we meet the grace of God here, the forgiveness of God, and through this we do become worthy of seeing one another as valued people of God. But there's another reason we partake of communion. We partake of communion because it goads us and shapes in us the life of Jesus, which is a life of justice. And it fortifies us to go into the world and speak truth 
as we can see it, as we are able, unworthy though as we are. It emboldens us and empowers us to call a thing what it is. And that's out of grace what we need to be doing as church in this time of place. In order to mend the divisions of our world is first to expose them, to expose the lie. The lie that has been camouflaged, the lie that has been covered up. But as soon as we expose it, the magnificent grace and love of God can wash over God's good creation and we can be healed. And the world in which we live, I hope you'll agree, is sorely in need of healing. And the people said, Amen.